and the church. We have to remember every time we get to take part in a wedding, or we get to witness a wedding, which is to take part in it, we get to bear witness of that thing which has been planned from the very foundation of the world with regards to the bride of Christ. But if there is a side, there is another side. Right? There is those that will be gathered up for destruction. In one place, it refers to it as being having one vessel made for honor and another for dishonor. So I'm in the plumbing supply business, so I know that the same material that's used to make the mug you might have been drinking your coffee on this morning is used to make your toilet bowl. That's exactly what he's referring to in that passage. They're not making any uh, partial statement. Of the same material, I made things for honor and for dishonor. And again, this teaching is harsh and it is crude, but it is exactly what he taught. And if we ever doubted it, we should consider a few certain points. And these are the things I want to really leave you with this morning. The first is Judas. Do you remember what Jesus said about Judas? Woe unto that man who betrayed him. It had been good for him. Good. This is out of the mouth of Jesus. Good for him if he had never been born. Now, if there is a man who lives that way, that means that there will be a category of man who lives that way, which means there are those who are not saved. This is not something that we should look at with gladness. This is not something that we should look at thinking to ourselves that we're just we're, we're better than someone else. This is a matter worth mourning over because the necessity of sin is death. It is the wages, the due just reward, destruction. For this cause, Jesus and God has expressed suffering these things to be so. Indeed, he suffers the creation to continue and sin to continue to be poured out in the world so we could get to this generation so that you could be born and then saved. He continues to suffer these things for us. But we cannot act as though there is not a separate category. We must bear this in mind and we must sorrow for sin, sorrow for the violence done to his creation. There was also the angels. Remember what it said of Lucifer in Isaiah? And we must not act as though there is no Satan on the earth. Jesus taught us that Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Goes about. There are some teachings in the world today of which I would contend strongly, against I would contend strongly, and say that Satan has been locked up for thousands of years, then why did Jesus teach that he goes about like a roaring lion? You have an enemy, beloved. You have an enemy, and he has a name. Of him it says, Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread over thee, and the worm cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? And again, I hold up a juxtaposition between what Jesus teaches, that he has his own, his own that he loves, his own that he is not just willing to, but actively did and does everything for, to preserve and to save against the fact that there is another group. And if you would say that God loves, and that's all he is, that he's not primarily holy, he's not just, he's not righteous, and that there should not be judgment, then you do not serve the God of the Bible in this teaching. We know because we know that the angels were never given any form of salvation. They fell as well. So now you have Judas and you have the angels. But I'd like to give you one more example, one that you're all very familiar with. Possibly the single greatest event in history outside of the actions of maybe Jesus, not maybe Jesus, but definitely Jesus, and Moses. The single greatest event in human history, and that was the flood. Through a little bit of study, you can find that nearly every old society, every old uh, civilization, every old culture has a story about a flood, that it happened. Depending on how you look at the earth, you can see that something happened to it, something strange. 
something dramatic. If you were to take uh, a little jar and put a bunch of different soils in it that were all mixed up and fill two-thirds with water and shake it up, the soils would separate, and they would separate into their weights. Right? You can see this is one of those experiments I did when I was in probably second or third grade in grammar school. I had great teachers when I was young. And you see different places in the earth where that happens, where the, the soil is just separated by types. It's an amazing and a beautiful thing. But I'd like to look at what happened then. Why did God flood the earth? Because this gives you the answer of why we need desperately a savior. In Genesis chapter 6, it says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took to them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord God said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for, he, for that he is also flesh, and yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. Now, right before this is a genealogy, and if your eyes glaze over in genealogies, I implore you to ask certain questions when you read through them. When was this person born? What was the nature of their life? Did they have siblings? How many? But an especially important one in Scripture is how many years have passed throughout the course of their life? And how many years have passed? There was just a genealogy that goes just over a thousand years. But in that just over a thousand years, they, they, had, they were able to continue to have children. And by that I mean they had children up until ages that we can't even imagine. There's no one alive today, right, who is 300 years old. I know I've said that here before. It is the great mockery of everyone and everything that everyone is dead before. It is the evidence of sin on the earth. But this time, Adam had lived to be 930. And then he died. How many children did Adam have? Now, some people uh, have children at different rates than others. And thinking about Asa and Carla delivering a child this morning, we want to continue to pray for them. But remember that there's going to be some who, have, who make the best use of their time in this particular way. So you can imagine someone having 50, 100 children if they're living 1,000 years. I mean, I'm 37 and I have seven, so you can do the math on that one, right? One might imagine that I might have uh, executed a different pace if there was a longer plan. But alas, I plan to die around 70 to 80, maybe 100. But I don't plan to be 1,000. But the children of age, which is to say, those children which are born when we're in our 50s or 60s, right? Them, for them, they would have been in their 500, 600, 700, 800 years. So you can imagine the earth wasn't just populated by a few sparse hundred people. I've seen many different people try the math on this, with the extreme ends being up in the billions, and most people centering around the hundreds of millions of people on the earth. That's about where we were just a few hundred years ago now. So you can imagine that the earth was full. And when God says things like he's about to, you have to imagine. It's not just something happening. My imagination when I first read this passage was often to just imagine a few small cities. And when God talks about things like violence, it being uh, just some warring tribe situation. But I would contend that if you have the ability to make an ark that can survive a worldwide flood for a year, that there are certain technologies and abilities that our forefathers had that maybe we don't respect them for. The idea that the genius of, of man was greater at the beginning than it is now is one that I would personally put forward because of the existence of sin in the world. Because I think sin made us less. Adam knew the nature of things so deep he could name them and be right. We have to remember that. And so if you imagine the people who were strong and smart and their strength was efficacious. You think, when you think of men and you watch uh, sports or uh, concerts or any other type of entertainment event where people are giving all of their strength to something, and you see people in the prime and strength of their youth, well, you know that youth is, is going to spend in about 10 years or so, right? The NFL, they call it uh, not for long, right? 
average uh, uh, time frame of a, of a career in that league is about three years, right? with some people lasting extraordinarily long and maybe making it a decade or two. But imagine if you had all the vigor and strength of youth for hundreds of years, and you turned to sin, and you turned to violence. Imagine what the world would look like, deceiving and being deceived. Indeed, I think our imaginations about the evil before the flood are simply covered by some of the world's teachings about how this generation is the best ever. And I just kind of just make one point about that. Beloved, Adam walked with God in the garden. Every generation since has been one generation further from walking face to face with God. We ought to honor those who came before. We ought to honor our fathers and look at it the right way and not think of ourselves as the greatest generation that ever lived. It's simply not true. But yet, in all this time, with all these technologies and advantages, it said that God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. That is the effect of sin on your Savior. And if it doesn't strike us the same way, then we have a division between us and him yet still. Let us pray for our continued sanctification that we might view sin in the world and evil in the world exactly as God is. Because... If nothing else, one day you will. In heaven, you will see things as he is because you will be made like him. Now there is a gap. Now there is a period of sanctification. Yet we know that we are glorified now, past tense, meaning we have all these promises, which means there is a point that we are at now and a point we are going to that we look to. Part of that is the understanding of God's holiness and the evil and wrong of sin. Why it is necessary that our hearts break before him. They repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. Imagine a father with a son that he loved who's gone out of the way and done horrible, horrible things. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, the creeping thing, the fowls of the air, for repenteth me that I have made them. But, and this is, beloved, this is one of the biggest buts in the Bible you ever see, the connecting word here. Because if it had not been for this one, you don't exist. I want you to think about that for a few minutes, and not just you, the world. And hold to that word, please. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God loved this man and his three sons, and their three wives, and his wife. The earth also was corrupted before the Lord, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupted. All flesh had corrupted his way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Yesterday, we got to hear a dissertation by Justice, Son of Justice, on justice in New York. I've been waiting since yesterday, it's true. But justice, rightly delivered, is the delivering of what is owed. Here, God is about to do that, but he's going to do it particularly in judgment, which Danny was kind enough to give us a bit of understanding further on. You know what's going to happen. He's going to instruct him. He's going to do most of the work for Noah. He's going to send in the animals. Imagine there's going to be many other provisions along the way he's going to need. He's going to give them time to warn them for 120 years. 120 years. You ever feel like you maybe got a warning a little too late? They couldn't say that. Indeed, he would have been a thorn in their side. Before the flood, it says in another place that they were still marrying and giving in marriage. They thought life was just going to continue as it was indefinitely. They were planning for the future all the time, despite God warning again and again. Now, I know that this can cause us to think ahead, think to maybe the end, when he's going to untie the elements with a knot. But I don't want to do that right now. I want you to consider this just as a past tense version of God's judgment, so we can understand more about God for a moment, and more understand a little bit more about the world. 
So it says in chapter 7, The Lord said to Noah, Come now in all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And then he tells him to take every clean beast, and so on and so forth. And it goes down, and it says, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the foundations of the great deep broken up. Think about that for a few seconds. There are certain words we might use for how that happened. Earthquake, volcanoes under the bottom of the ocean, an explosion, and a change of the earth forever. Beloved, I would make the case that the world as we know it is a desert compared to what it was before. That it had to be completely washed over, ruined. Indeed, the fact that anything grows after something that cataclysmic happens tells you that God's hand was guiding the entire time. We know that Jesus prays about us. John chapter 17, he says very mysterious things. He prays for us. He prays that we not be taken out of the world. Indeed, he wants us here. He wants us here to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, preserving, adding flavor that God might find acceptable, that he not, that he might stay his hand, that we might see another generation of his elect, of his beloved. But he also says things like, I pray not for the world. But then we see passages that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, you know the studies, you know the differences in the Greek words, if you've had uh, certain preachers come through here, but I'd like to contend that you can understand what Jesus is saying in a way that even these children can understand. Because when, if Noah had died, the world was destroyed. No man exists. It's gone forever. But God saved the entire world by saving those eight souls. Think about that. Everything you know, everything you can imagine about history, everything that's ever happened to you, happened through the salvation of those eight souls. And even among them, their children and their children were not going to continue to be righteous. God was gracious to them, but sin still exists in the world. But beloved, we should see the power of God through saving just a very small remnant. That is our hope. We might look around the world and see nothing but violence. But violence, it says, is preserved unto the day of the Lord. He has loved his own. He loves them to the end. He will raise them up, he says, at the last day. This is the thing upon which our hope rests. But let us remember in the picture of God's judgment and justice as he does so, he also always, always has done so with grace and mercy. And let us not ever say idly that his mercies are new every morning. Beloved, today are new mercies that did not exist before. They're from the same provider of the lives of Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives and all the animals of the ark. Think about it. Every animal that you see, God took time to save. Beloved, that is the same care and affection that he has for us even to this day. Thank you for your good attention. Appreciate a continued interest in your prayers. I enjoyed and appreciate Brother John's message and ask that you pray for us as we look into the scriptures a little more. So back in the summer, we, we looked at um, the, the role of the, uh, the deacon, and I was going to continue on in that, um, in that way of thinking and, and the teaching that's in the Scripture, and then we immediately started meeting at the Old Brick Church, and, and sort of mind and, and uh, worship went a little bit different direction from the historical aspect of the Old Brick meeting house and the services that they'd had through the years. I'd like to sort of pick up where we left off the time before. In the Primitive Baptist, 
It's a very simple order of worship. And it's a very simple government within the church body. That's the way God set it up. And that's probably one of the reasons that it's continued for so many years. Because it's so very, very simple. There's a couple of offices that the Lord blesses to have within the church for the church to function uh, on, on an ongoing basis. The first one is of the pastor teacher or as it's mentioned in First Timothy as the bishop or the pastor teacher. The second role is that of the refers to as deacons or as servants and both the pastor and the deacon are servants to the church body, the church family. And the Lord sets the church up in this very simple fashion. And when it's all working together, when the congregation and the deacons and the pastor or ministers are working together, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. If anything gets out of sort, if, uh, if anything gets out of order there, it begins to affect the congregation as a whole. So it's very, very important that... The, uh, that the arrangement that God set up, that those that are involved in it are committed to working together. That's very, very important. The church doesn't work. It's not set up like a business. You can't operate the church like you would operate your business. There's other things to consider. When there are concerns or issues, uh, folks have the opportunity to come together and see what God's Word has to say about it. And also to pray together and ask for the Lord to direct and give a clear path. And also ask God to change hearts. And God gives us a real simple but profound method of changing hearts. First of all, God does it, but we can, if we have issues, if we have concerns, if we have differences, we can go before the Lord in prayer, but we can also go before the Lord in fasting and prayer. And it's amazing how that maybe if you go before the Lord, because there's something upon your heart, maybe between you and someone else, that it's amazing how that that God sometimes changes our heart. Not necessarily the heart of the other person, but God can change both hearts. And it's very possible that both hearts might be uh, need some changing. So we don't a church doesn't function the same way. The church is also not a money making entity. It's not. It's not our primary focus to find out where we can where we can plant money to earn the highest rate of return. The money that is given to a church body is for the purpose of sustaining it. Now, it's, it's okay if you have it in a savings account. It's not to say that you don't use a savings account. But it's not the purpose of the church to build up a bunch of CDs. The purpose of the funds that are within the church is to supply for the uh, building, for the dwelling place, to supply for the ministry, and to supply for those that have needs within the body. And that's the purpose of it. But it's not like you, you don't look at a... 
profit and loss statement and, uh, and pat yourself on the back if you've uh, had a, a big increase to the bottom line. That's not how the church functions. So in the church body that the Lord set up, he set it up, as we mentioned, in a very simple fashion. It's a blessing when you have these parts working together within a church body. It doesn't always happen that way. It's not always the optimum situation. I remember going to a church in upstate New York. The, the church had declined and the church body was about six or seven 80 year old sisters. I remember they could hardly get into the building and it was a it was it was a, almost a sad setting to witness. Those sisters have passed away. The doors have closed. But at the time, one sister took care of the maintenance of the building. Another sister took care of the funds that were coming in. They came together and they filled the roles that were necessary. They filled those positions. It wasn't the optimum situation, but they were able to function in that capacity. We're going to look at the optimum situation that God designed right here. In Acts chapter 6, we'll just touch a few verses right here. And, and I, the reason that I feel that it's important to look at this is because we need to go forward and look out among us, as the scriptures say, and ordain some more deacons here at Mount Carmel. I really thought that the last time we ordained deacons would be the last time that I was involved with it. I thought the new pastor, the next pastor, would be ordaining new deacons, but but I've about outlived all of those, and so I feel like that we're going to have to address it again. I, sometimes I'm reminded about how old I am. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded that when I go through the TSA at the airport. I fly quite a bit, and more often when I go through there, they'll ask me as I'm going through, they'll say, do you have any metal implants? And, and I think, well, do I look like I have metal implants? Or why didn't you ask the person in front of me or the person behind me? Or wonder if I need metal implants? And that's gotten to where it's a fairly regular thing. So I don't know if I need metal implants or not, but I don't have any metal implants right now. Thank goodness. But I think it's it's probably time to ordain. Brother Kilby will be greatly relieved. Brother Kilby is serving as a deacon and he served ever since I've been here. He's been he's been serving in that capacity and a great blessing. And he has a lot of wisdom and he has a lot of counsel and a lot of discernment. Several have passed away. Several have moved away. And uh, we need to look out among us and we need to ordain some deacons. And so we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about it. Very simple, but yet very important and profound situation. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 6, it says, And in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. And it's talking about the widows. And it's saying that there was a need because there were some folks that were being neglected. The ministers and the pastors were doing all they could, but the needs grew greater than that. And I trust as, as the Lord adds to our church, the needs will grow and become greater and greater. But it says that there was a little bit of uh, dissension between, uh, between these widows. And so there were some needs that were arising that were not being met. 
And it says, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason. And here is the purpose that they ordained deacons at that time. It says, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So it's important that there be the individuals filling the proper roles. I believe that a pastor ought to be willing to do whatever needs to be done. But it doesn't mean that the pastor has to do everything that needs to be done. And the role of the deacon is to fill the gap between the needs of the church family and the minister in order to free up the hands of the minister to be able to study the word, to pray for the flock, and to be able to go out and preach to the folks. Now, if you have deacons that are in tune and in touch with needs that are going on, they'll oftentimes take care of those needs uh, and, 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 and folks don't even know anything about it. I'll give you for instance. When I moved up from Texas, uh, we rented this big old farmhouse over off of Churchfield Road at 136. It needed a lot of work and it was a wonderful place. We had wonderful times of fellowship, good seasons. I didn't have a working stove and I had a refrigerator that worked about a third of the time. And Brother Oris Jackson, we had a singing out at the house, had a great time of fellowship. And Brother Oris Jackson noticed that the carton of milk that I bought two days before wouldn't last because the refrigerator wouldn't stay cold. Brother Jackson didn't say anything to me about it. Brother Jackson didn't say anybody to anything to anybody else about it. Brother Jackson asked me, he said, do you have a key that you stash around the house sometimes? And he said, uh, it, it, where is that key? And I told him where it was. And uh, I'd gone out to a preaching appointment. And I came back and there was a brand new refrigerator sitting in place of the old refrigerator. He saw a need. He addressed that need. Shortly after that, when they realized that didn't have a working cook stove, Brother Jackson and some other deacons, I walked back and to the house and there was a brand new cook stove sitting there. It hadn't really helped my cooking all that much, but uh, it sure was nice to have to be able to heat up oatmeal and, and boil eggs and things like that. But, uh, but they witnessed a need and they took care of that need and they didn't make a big deal out of it. They didn't. So he says that, first of all, you look out among you. That means among your church family. It doesn't, what it doesn't mean is that you run an ad in the paper. Or that you put something on Indeed. That's one of the more common websites that you can hire folks. That's not how you go about getting someone let me just say this. It's not how you go about getting somebody to fulfill the role of a deacon. And it's not the way you go about getting someone to fill the role of the pastor or the minister. It's within the church body. I've known of folks that were great singers that could play the piano real well. And it was confusing to me because they would tell me that they were hired to go to a particular church and play uh, for the worship service or sing for the worship service. And I had a hard time figuring that out because I thought, do you really have a heart for it? Do you really believe what they're preaching? And do you really believe what they're uh, singing about? And so he says, you look out among you. Now, it's important to note that when you're looking for a minister or a pastor, 
First of all, you go to the Lord. It says that that's who you talk to when you're looking for a pastor. Now, it's important that when you're looking for deacon or deacons, you go to the Lord, but he tells you where to look. He says, you look out from among you. And so he says, look out from among you. He says, seven men. It doesn't have to be seven. That's symbolic of a complete number. It could be two. It could be five. At one point, we had about eight deacons here at Mount Carmel. Some old, some young. He says, look out from among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost. He gives three qualifications right here. He says, look out from among you honest men of an honest report. What does he mean right here? He goes on in detail and tells us in 1 Timothy a little bit more in detail. He says, you look out from among you men that have a good report within the flock and also without the flock. Not only just within the flock. Now, when this was written, it was before Facebook and Twitter and all of the other methods of communication. Yet it was a very important item that the individual that's to be considered had a good report within and without. I use Brother Jackson as a great example. He was here in the community. His His testimony at Mount Carmel bore the same witness of his testimony in the community. He was fulfilling this verse right here. Not only Brother Jackson, Brother John Davis, uh, Brother Don Malcolm, others we've, we've had that fulfilled that role. Number one, you look out men that have an honest report. Number two, men that are full of the Holy Ghost. What does that simply mean? They're going to be working with a lot of important issues. A lot of important situations. They're going to be making a lot of decisions. And when he says full of the Holy Ghost, what it simply means right here is that you look to the Lord to direct you. You don't necessarily look to your past experience. You don't necessarily look to something else. That when there are issues that come up that need to be addressed, you look to the Lord for wisdom and direction. It's very, very important. He says of Full of the Holy Ghost. And then he says something else right here. He says, and when you're looking for someone, look for somebody that has exercised a measure of wisdom. Doesn't mean they've got everything figured out. But it means that they look to the Lord and they ask Lord for judgment and direction and wisdom. Now, when I was uh, first ordination... First ordination that I went to as a minister's ordination. I think I told you I was 16 years old. I'd never been to an ordination service. I didn't know what it was about. And I remember the minister that was being ordained was about 50 years old. And, and I didn't know that they would still ordain folks at that age. And I remember the pastor saying the only honorable retirement for a minister of the gospel that's ordained. And I was really excited when you're 16 or 15 years old, you think, well, what is that retirement age? And he said, it's death. And I thought, well, I know I don't want that job. Well, it's sort of that way with a deacon. You fulfill that role all your life, like Brother Kilby is still serving in that capacity. And he says it's an honorable position. All right, let's go over and look at, and just going to touch on this. We're going to probably... Pick up on this at a later time. But let's go and look at Timothy's example of the qualifications of a deacon. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, we've looked at the need for the deacon and why the role was created within the church body, within the church family. Now we're going to look at the qualifications. First of all, I'm going to tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that you're looking for somebody that's perfect. We've never had a perfect deacon, never had a perfect pastor. But you're looking at folks that strive in these areas, that are mindful of these areas. Let's look at what it says. It first mentions the responsibilities of a pastor, of a minister, of a bishop. And then he says, after he's gone over the responsibilities of a minister or a bishop, then he says, likewise, meaning you don't just simply say, well, this applies to the ministers and nobody else. He says, you need to consider this as well. So we're going to we're going to go down through this real quickly. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good work. Do you know there's a lot of things that come into play when somebody is called to pastor a church, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel. But one of the things that he says right here, and I believe this is an evidence of a calling of an individual that's going to deliver the gospel, is that he has a desire to do it. You know, one of the reasons I believe Brother John is called of the Lord to deliver the gospel, he has a desire. It doesn't matter if it's New York City, if it's Columbia, Maryland, if it's Southampton. He has a desire to load up his little congregation with him, take them all over the country to be in a service to hear and encourage the gospel to be preached. And if he's called on to do it, he has a desire to do it. Now, that's not the only thing that's that, 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 that's necessary to preach the gospel, but that's a real important thing. It really is. He says he first has a desire for the work, and he says something else. He doesn't say it's an easy work, but he says it's a good work. Not anything better that you can spend your time doing than the good work of the Lord. Now, you know, it's, it's great to know that we don't do the good work to populate heaven. But we do it because we believe we're heaven bound. And we believe that we're laboring with a bunch of folks that are headed in the same direction, that have struggles and trials and difficulties. And if God gives you the promises to share with God's people, to help them along the way, it's a good work. It is. Anything that points to Christ is a good work. It's a good work. He says, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. There have been a variety of, of, um, of uh, deliveries through the years of ministers of the gospel. And there were some that would get into a delivery, a chant that would be, you would almost have to focus to interpret the delivery that was being proclaimed. And it might even take away from what you could learn. Well, right here it says that one of the important roles of the pastor is he ought to be able to just simply teach something. To take God's word, open it up, and share it. He says, not given to wine, 
no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth his own house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if, and, and he just sort of plugs this in. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? He says he's not a novice. And this is talking about the bishop or the minister, not a novice being lifted up with pride, lest he be lifted up with pride, lest he fall in the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he and here's here's again where it says he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then he says right here, likewise, likewise. So it just means that here's shifting gears to the role of the deacon. Likewise, the deacon must be grave. It it, it doesn't mean he has to be sad. Doesn't mean he has to be mean. Doesn't mean he has to be difficult. Doesn't mean he has to be hard. But it means he has to be serious. We were blessed with wonderful deacons here at Mount Carmel. And one of the things that they all expressed in their actions is that they took the role seriously. They really did. Not only did they take the role seriously, but their wives did as well. And the charge that's given right here is to the deacon, but it's also given to the deacon's wife. And when we have an ordination service, the deacon and his wife set in front of the minister that's delivering the charge and the charge is to the deacon and to the deacon's wife here's what he says moreover uh, he says likewise the deacons must be grave not double tongued so when a deacon is functioning properly in that role in that capacity It's amazing if a deacon is full of wisdom and seeking the direction from the Lord. It's amazing how that a deacon can sort of put to bed a lot of things before they become big items. Now, I don't know of any right now that we have. Thank the Lord. I I, I thank the Lord for that. But a deacon that's following the direction of the Lord and asking for wisdom and asking for direction from the Holy Spirit, it's amazing how they can fulfill that role. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. One of the wisest old deacons that I ever knew was Brother Dudley Towns from the church that I grew up in in Lubbock, Texas. And Brother Towns was wise. He was very old. Uh, he, he was not physically able to do the, the things that he had done in the past, but he had a lot of wisdom. Somebody came to the house, to his house. I've shared this with some of you before, but some of, someone came to his house and said to him, well, I figured out who's buttering the bread at the Lubbock church. He said, I don't understand that. Well, what you're talking about? He said, I don't know what you mean. He says, I figured out the family that's running the Lubbock church. And he said, well, I don't understand what you're 
wanting to. He could tell that something was trying to get stirred up. He thought for a minute. And he said, he, he knew the family well that was mentioned. And he said, well, I, I know them well. And I love them a lot. And I really don't think they're running the church. But if they are, I sure like the way they're doing it. Well, that just totally put to bed what could have become an issue. And that was through the wisdom of a deacon that God blessed him to come back and say the right thing. He says he must be grave. He must not be double tongued, must not be given to much wine. You know, I'm just going to touch on this right here. Through the years, I've had a variety of personal convictions on this. And one of the things that helped me in my conviction regarding wine, I'm just going to share this with you, was the first miracle that Christ did. Anybody know what that was? He turned water into wine at a wedding. If if wine was completely wrong, I expect that the Lord would have picked something else for the first miracle. But what is wrong is to be given to intoxication or being inebriated. I enjoyed going back and reading through the old brick records. It goes all the way back almost 300 years. And it was interesting that within the church body that there were primarily two things within the church body that they withdrew fellowship from the church members from. Primarily two. One is, if an individual was given to intoxication within the community and it brought shame and reproach upon the church, then they sent a committee to labor with them. And if they didn't repent, then eventually they'd be brought before the church. The second reason was adultery. Those are the two primary reasons that old brick, and those are both supported in the scriptures. It is. In fact, this is interesting to know. I, I, it was interesting to me. Maybe it will be to you. Back, I think it was in the 1800s, when the Temperance Society wanted to use Old Brick Meeting House to have a meeting. They were very strong in their position. And so the church body, and this is written, and the letter that they wrote is copied in the minute books of the Old Brick Church. They wanted to have a meeting there to promote their position and agenda. And Old Brick, rather than just simply say, we don't think that's a good idea, they wrote a very eloquent, lengthy response to them, and they said this. They said, first of all, we don't want to offend you. That's not our intent. We want to be very mindful, and we do not want to offend you. But within our church body... We have within our church body, there are those that absolutely do not have any daily participation with alcohol at all. And as a body, we respect that. And within our same church body, there are those that occasionally partake 
of wine or alcohol, but not to the point of being intoxicated. We don't support that. And as a result, within our church body, we've decided that it's not best suited for you to have your meeting in our church building. I thought that was an interesting way to put it. They put forth some effort to make sure they didn't offend the people that were requesting it. But they also explained and they also expressed that within the church family, there's some room for some different convictions within that. So what he's saying right here, it doesn't mean that you don't have wine. But what it does mean is that the individual is not given to intoxication with this. That's how I understand it. Maybe maybe there are others that see that different. I'm sure where I grew up in, in, in where I grew up, there were some strong positions on it both ways. I believe within a church body, very much like the old brick folks did, that it's within that that body. But he says not given to much wine. Not greedy of filthy lucre. Why is that an important one? Because the deacons are primarily the ones that are going to be handling the funds of the church. And they need to have wisdom in how to disperse those funds. It's important that you look to the Lord for direction. That you're not extravagant. But that you're mindful that it's the church's funds. It's not just because a deacon has his name on the checking account. It doesn't mean that that, that's the deacon's funds. It's the church's funds. And they represent the church. In an optimum situation, with the needs that are uh, around us today, within that group or within the church body, there's oftentimes a treasure that writes checks that has their name on the checking account. There's oftentimes a church clerk, maybe an assistant to the church clerk that writes the letters of communication when somebody joins by membership or transfers their letters uh, that fulfills that role. And many times it's the deacon that or deacons that are involved in that. Uh, We've had some wonderful ones here. Most of those are with the Lord right now that that uh, that served in that capacity. Brother Kilby brought me a sheet the other day that had the names of 14 or 15 deacons that we've ordained and labored with since we've been here uh, in the last 30 years. So he says that uh, not greedy of filthy lucre. And then this next one is really important. I just want to touch on this. I know that our time is is out and, and there's still another 30 minutes worth of great stuff right here we'll we'll pick up on. But I want you to get this one because this is really good. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. That is how he's describing this individual that's to be considered. It's someone that that delights in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's someone who is committed to the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's someone who desires that their life be in be conformed in such a way 
that they can rejoice in the gospel, that they can be an encouragement to other people, that they're not going to be a distraction or a hindrance to other folks by the way that they live, but that they can enjoy the blessings of what he says is the mystery or the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that their life does not take away from it. And I tell you, we can look back upon those that we've had that have labored with us. They took it serious. They didn't want to be a hindrance to the church body, to the church family. They would have, the ones that I know, they would have preferred to lay down the responsibility of fulfilling that role than to be a hindrance or a discouragement to anybody within the church family. They put the desires of other people, the needs of others, and the preferences of others above theirs. And if you have a group of deacons that are serving in that capacity and preferring others, their brothers and their sisters above themselves, everybody's going to get along just real good. It's not to say that you're not going to, you're not always going to see everything the same way, but you have a whole lot of long suffering with everybody else. It doesn't have to be my way all the time. Well, there's a whole lot more. You sisters have been spared because we just didn't get to it. But we will, Lord willing, over the next few weeks. And then, Lord willing, if the Lord blesses us, we'll, we'll, we'll set a time to discuss as a, as a church family and recognize those that we want to set aside that are willing. First of all, they need to be willing to do it. They need to have a desire to do it. It needs to be some. It needs to be something that God put on your heart to do. That's the first thing. It does. And then we'll set aside a time to ordain some deacons. And I will say this: very likely, this next group of deacons, at some point, will probably be working together, ushering a new pastor in at some point. Brother Mike told me that he had resigned at San Antonio after 20 some odd years. I don't know that I'm going to make it another 20 years like Susan's grandfather did, Elder Thompson. And so it's going to be important that a group of deacons that labor together, that have the gospel as the primary focus and the church family as a primary focus, that they labor together in that capacity. We'll continue on. It's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the blessing that God has set for the church of Jesus Christ. And if God's put it on your heart to serve in this capacity, it will be a great blessing to you and a great blessing to the church family as well.